open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. I'm Gary Wirtz. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, Dr. Toby Tyson joins our hosts, Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wartz, to provide insights into the lessons he has learned from expanding his practice. Thank you for listening. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. We're your hosts, Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz. And Gary, how are you doing, man? It's, uh, it's been a few weeks since I've talked to you. Yeah, I've been doing great. You know, this has been a busy summer for all of us. It's been a busy meeting schedule, but uh, I'm really excited for this episode in particular. Um, today, we're talking to our good friend, Dr. Toby Tyson. So, Toby, without further ado, uh, thanks for coming on the program today. We've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while uh, because uh, you have so much to teach us, and and I'm just excited to hear a little bit more about your story and, um, you know, just honestly learn what has made your your life as an ophthalmologist what it is today. Um, Toby, why don't you give us, for, for the few people out there who might not know, can you give us a little bit of just an overview of your practice, where you're located, um, how long you've been there, and th those sorts of things? I'm Toby Tyson. I practice in Southwest Florida, so Fort Myers, Cape Coral, Naples area. Um, I actually second generation ophthalmology, just like Blake, and so... Part of it is, you know, we're talking about making your brand. I got to grow up watching not just my father's practice and how it was trying to be branded, but also watching all the competition. So when I came back, I had a good idea of what would work, what wouldn't, how did I want to compete in a highly competitive market? And so when I came back, we had one office, um, one with a surgery center inside it. We were on one side of the river, and at that point in life, pretty much, we had a sort of a monopoly for that area, and everybody else was battling it out across the, the river. And this was before you started having really uh, aggressive marketing. And so that was about 2001 when I came back to the practice. Now we have nine offices, two surgery centers, and five MDs with optometry also. So I've had to grow it, not because of ego, but because of the economics of the area and how to be able to financially be able to employ the people necessary these days, the people for billing, the ones for uh, making sure that everything's been approved, being able to fight the denials, keeping all our licenses active. You can't do that anymore as a single surgeon very easily because every time you turn your back, they've changed the contract on you and you have to reapply to uh, whatever insurance flavor of the week is volume two, three, four, because they know if you can't get on the plan, then you're doing it for free. And so we've learned that you have to have the right personnel in place. So you have to have a certain size to be able to be able to employ that type of people. 
I think that kind of gets to what you're saying, critical mass. You know, it used to be that you could sort of hang a shingle and with the, with the way reimbursement was, you didn't have to do see that many patients or do that many surgeries or be that savvy in business to make a pretty good living. Not to say that those who came before us weren't those things, but the, the floor was a lot higher in terms of, you know, if you go out there and, and do a reasonably good job, you're going to be successful. Blake, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, but it seems like you have to almost have or be part of a mega practice to do all the things Toby's talking about. Talk me through what your thoughts on that are, Blake. Yeah, I think that I think that um, it, it is hard to go um, hang a, a sign. We've talked about that in previous episodes for those people who do want to do it. Instead, I would just go out and purchase a busy, medically-minded optometric practice, uh, like a single optom, um, you know, who's been in practice 20, 30 years, that would be a great way to start. Starting cold turkey, even for us in our market where we're, where we're really well known, uh, is very difficult. We would plan to lose money for quite a bit before doing that. So I can, I can only imagine just opening up your own place right out of school. You know, I love, you know, the idea of, you know, being a part of a practice like Toby's um, and, you know, sort of growing within that. You know, if you're really talented, you know, it's likely that that the that the practice owner will, will let you sort of buy into uh, uh, the the practice and the the, the ASC over time uh, if they want to keep you if you're really talented. If not, at least you learn uh, uh, you know certain skills that you can't learn uh, in residency, and you get to learn them in the real world. And then you might you know go join a practice that that does uh, offer that if that's a goal of yours. You know, many of our colleagues you know frankly don't want to put forth the capital necessary to buy into a very very busy practice. Um, you know, at a high EBITDA, uh, understandably, they're okay being employed, uh, especially if they're treated right and given autonomy. But I think that um, it's just different strokes for different folks. And so, um, you know, a practice like like uh, Tyson I uh, gives you the opportunity to to excel if you want to, um, and if you're wanting to, you know, be more of a role player who's who, who's employed uh, and is happy to do so. I'm sure there's a place for you there as well. At least that's how we we've done it in in our practice. Well, another thing that you bring up, Blake, is, you know, for the three of us, we kind of came into practices that were established that were heavily dependent on Medicare and the insurances. The other way to look at it is if you are coming out, you don't necessarily have to play that insurance rule because you're not trying to feed the beast still. You can start off with more of a boutique premium practice with maybe low volume but high margin and be very successful going that route also. I want to ask you about that. Toby, do you sometimes, uh, I, I'm sure Gary feels this way. I certainly feel this way. Do you sometimes kind of like have that sort of grass is greener vibe where it's like after you've just done 35 cataracts in a row, you're like, man, it'd be nice to do like eight cataracts that are, you know, all premium. I'm sure all most of your 30 are premium anyway, but, but I, I like the, I, sometimes I think about creating a boutique practice within my larger practice. And that's what I've done is, I only see certain things, I only see certain surgeries, and I've been able to kind of create that. Have you tried to do that within your practice? So I have I cover a fairly large geographic area, and Naples is our newest uh, quote satellite office. And what I look back on is I'm like, my gosh, you know, the conversion rate is so high, the margins are so good. What do I really need? If all I had to have was a check-in uh slash office manager. I wouldn't have to have billers or any of the authorizations team. I could just do purely cash and have um, one or two good techs. 
I really would be able to take home probably the same amount of money with a heck of a lot of less hassle, but that office is helping feed the other satellites that were pre-existing. So I, um, as I've gotten older, I've gone down to four days a week. I'm pretty much just doing uh, cataracts and surgery. So yes, I have kind of narrowed my focus and let the younger guys do the more esoteric stuff. And that's been very rewarding and I enjoy having the extra day off. Um, so I do, I do think you can have a smaller boutique practice within a practice. Yeah. I also think that there's some wisdom. My, my, my partner, Lance Ferguson has mentioned just sort of the idea of having a mutual fund practice where you have multiple revenue sources. You may have, you know, your top revenue source may be your top premium and that may be really, really great for a long time, but then the economy tanks and you're happy to have the Medicare cataracts and, you know, not everything has the same profit margin, but also not everything has the same level of risk. And so diversifying your practice a little bit, I think, do, does hedge you a little bit when, when you know, you don't know what the economy is going to do in, in five years or so. Well, you saw that with the LASIK. All of a sudden, everybody dropped their cataracts. I'm just going to do LASIK. And then LASIK, the bottom dropped out. And now they're trying to rebuild their cataract practices. Exactly. So there's some lessons there. I'd love to. So speaking of lessons, one one thing we like to talk to all of our guests on and, and learn from is, you know, and we've been talking about this a little bit organically, but what what lessons do you feel like you have learned as you not only grew up in ophthalmology and were a casual observer, but maybe how have things changed? Um, were What were some decisions that you made early that were hard that turned out working out well for you or vice versa, decisions that you wish you would have done differently that you had to learn the hard way? Um, what comes to mind? Well, when I started expanding, it was nice because it started bringing more volume into the practice. So I was having my own kind of built-in feeder system because in my market, you had several very large players. So you couldn't outspend them on marketing. You weren't going to uh, out-co-manage them because they already pretty much had bought and sold the co-management area. So I would open up a satellite office. I would bring in an optometrist and organically grow my practice that way. But one of the things that I learned is that you really want visibility in your locations. And so a lot of times I would buy um, old bank buildings because they would be extremely well built. They had a large uh, uh, parking space availability. Their layouts were perfect. Their teller desks were their check-in, check-out. You had all the little offices around the air, the periphery that were great for uh, exam rooms. And then you had a nice big lobby in the center. And of course, they were always on the ideal corners in your community. So they had a high visibility. And it, I found very quickly that it was better to pay mortgage and have about 18% of my patients tell me that they came to the practice because they saw the building versus paying for a TV or radio ad that the moment it was gone, it was gone. And you had to generate so many uh, cataracts off of that one ad just to pay for itself. What I, as I was expanding, I tried do, having offices in strip malls next to the grocery store, you know, and you think that these would be high flow, high traffic areas, but very quickly you realize that you're paying the cam for the big grocery store. They're not paying any cam. So you've got a high rent rate and everybody's going straight to the grocery store. They're getting the groceries and they're leaving and they're never going by your place. They're never looking at you. 
and the other thing is the perception by the um, patients is, oh, they're not successful. They're just working out of a small office. So it was better for me to acquire a four to 7,000 square foot commercial building on a main drag. And then you ask, well, how do you feed, uh, feed that place right off the bat? This is where I used more of a div, uh, dispersive model of my administration. So if I opened up a new office, I'd move, let's say, billing out there. Instead of having a centralized administration, I would actually start sprinkling administration on to all the different offices because I had that excess space. Now, as I've gotten busier and now I need all that space for clinic, it allows me to go open up another office and move more of the administration out there and leave the other one purely clinical. But it was a good way to utilize space that you were paying rent for, but give the perception that you were um, much more successful than you actually were at that time point. Interesting. So you gave yourself space to grow into because you had a decentralized um, service taking up that space until it was needed elsewhere, until you needed right. that space you could decentralize it and put it somewhere else. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. Now, do you, in your model, do you have optical, do you have full service op ophthalmology, optometry? Do you focus more on, on the surgical aspects, cataract refractive? Talk, talk to us about your model and how it works. So we have um, full service optometry. Our optometrists are not super techs. They have practices within the practice. When I put them out at a satellite office, that is their office. I do not rotate them around. I do not rotate around the opticians or the techs because I want the patients to feel like that's their home, that they trust those um, individuals, that they recognize them. So when it does come time for cataract surgery and they say, you need cataracts, um, we're going to set you up with Dr. Tyson. They don't go down the street and shop someplace else because they have no association for the practice. And that's worked real well. Meanwhile, the reason I did that is I was watching other ophthalmologists in my market that had multiple satellites. They would rotate all their staff around because they were so scared that those uh, doctors would actually uh, build a clientele and then open up right down the street. And I think as long as you keep your staff, uh, you know, happy in the practice, both financially and professionally, then it's a win-win for everybody and they're not going to leave you. So I do have op um, opticals in all but one of the offices. And I'm kind of at that point where it's gotten tougher and tougher. It used to be a great profit center. So when we would first start off a new office, I'd open up the office. I would put in a, a optician and an optometrist. The optician would also work the front desk and do check-in, check-out, and they could do the optical and they would make enough money in optical that they would subsidize the optometrist who wasn't seeing enough patients right off the bat. By the next year, now it was time to go ahead and bring in um, a technician, maybe a front desk person in the opti op optical shop was still generating very well, but now the optometrist was covering himself and I could continue to expand that practice um, slowly but organically. And that's because optical was pretty much fairly retail and made good money. Later in Florida, what's happened is the insurance companies have realized that we make money on optical. So they came in and said, well, if you wanna keep your medical patients with us, you're gonna have to be on our optical plan and you're gonna have to use our frames, our lens lab and our lenses and we'll give you $15 to dispense. Well, you can't pay a licensed optician $15 to dispense a pair of glasses because the amount of time it takes to check in, check out, make the order. 
So now I'm sitting there looking at it. When I went into Naples, I purposely did not put in an optical shop because I didn't want to have to pay for all that overhead that was involved, the rent on that space that was being used, having to staff the frame board on frames that I wasn't allowed to really sell anyways, and then paying for a licensed optician. It was just, it was just easier to, to not have it and say, oh, I'm so sorry, we don't have optical here. So now the question is, do I start divesting out of optical because that real estate is more valuable seeing uh, patients for, frankly, cataract surgery um, at one point we even had audiology in the practice and it was making money, but you quickly learned that it was a different message than the rest of the practice. And the amount of revenue that you were creating, once you needed that space, eventually when you first put it in, it was just, okay, I've got excess capacity. This is an overhead reducer. At a certain point you start saying, well, shoot, I can bring in retina and that is going to generate much better profit margin than audiology for the same space. And it's kind of more in our market. So at one point we've divested out of audiology, brought in retina. Now I think it's very market dependent, but I think optical can be a winner, but it can also be a break even or a loss leader. Interesting. Funny listening to this, like our practices are just identical in every single way. I mean, the same number of locations, the same model with optoms at every location. They're there you know, four to five days a week. It's not like they, they're they there a half day a week and they call it a, a satellite location. You know, they're actually there. You know, we we're, we're, we're had audiology, now we don't. Uh, we're heavy on optical. You know, now uh, it's it's there has been some nuance and changes there. One thing that we've done in that space is actually uh, sold optical um, uh, to the, our optometrists. And, and so that's been a, a wonderful way to kind of bring them on as a partner, giving them some ownership of Williamson Eye Center um, is that some of them who've shown interest in that have been able to buy in or take over the optical because you kind of you know, we're we're like honestly that's more your space anyway you're probably going to do a better job uh, of running that um, and, and it's you know when it affects your bottom line so so that's been kind of a way for us to sort of get out of optical but still kind of stay in it we we love the opportunity to kind of bring people in for eye care eyewear and eye surgery and kind of be like Gandhi you know, a, a river to your people, you know, you kind of sell everything. So it's vertically integrated. And so that's been our model. It's just the exact same. Toby, um, what I'd love to hear is kind of how you jump from one to eight or nine practices. You know, did you do it strategically by, by gobbling up and buying other practices, kind of like your own PE, or did you flat out just hang a sign in a new location? You know, cause, cause I'm trying to figure out right now in my, in my market, how do I go from local to regional? We're at eight locations. We have an opportunity to do another one that's going to make us more regional. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how I can best do that. And, and one, one nuance to that also, how, how did you, do, how did you do the calculation to know it was likely going to be a winner? I think that's a different, so yeah. So part of it was. Is it in a geographical area that it can get back to feed the surgery center? I watched the, the guys that used to be in the 1980s have their surgery center, and they had 31 satellite offices feeding it from as far away as an hour and a half. And then you started watching their wheel and hub and spoke model start to break down because, oh, that area finally got busy enough that a local guy comes in, builds his own surgery center, and now you've got to amputate that spoke off. And you're just watching these large practices having to continue to, to shrink and shrink down. And the problem is that their infrastructure was built for volume, volume, volume. And so 
as you started losing the volume, the the finances didn't make sense. So I first off, I needed to make sure that this was in a zone that the patients could get back to our surgery center. When I first started off, I went to an area that had 18 golf course communities around it, and there was no ophthalmologist. And I didn't care the fact that everybody thought that uh, socioeconomically, it wasn't the uh, best place. You were watching everybody kind of laugh and go, oh, well, you know, some of those golf course communities ha um, have trailer parks in them. And I go, it doesn't matter. Medicare pays the same amount of money, whether it's there or in Naples, where people are living in $15 million homes. And this was before premium lenses. So then I tried that one for the first one and that worked very well. And I, it was start from scratch, just slowly build it up. And when I figured that out, the next year I said, well, let's open up two more because if I could do one, why can't you do two? That's when I learned the lesson that cash flow has a very important part. So yes, you could go out there and uh get the leases or buy the buildings and do this stuff. But now you're getting a cash flow crunch because you're just not generating the revenue. You could absorb a little bit of loss on one while it's growing, but absorbing the loss on two, which was much more difficult. So I learned never to do two in a year. And then I got to about five offices and I just kind of settled out. Then we had uh, the recession come through. And this is where you've got to be somewhat nimble in your practice and you have to be able to swallow your pride because I really didn't want to close office buildings because I didn't want it to give the perception that, you know, something was wrong with the practice or something. But when the recession came through, they started changing around the way that they would, uh, the insurance companies would deal with us. And they said, since I don't have any offices on the other side of the bridge in Fort Myers, that they were going to kick me off the plans. And I was like, I'm the only full service ophthalmology practice on the north side of the river. Cape Coral is the second largest land city in the state. And I'm the only one that has a surgery center over here. I'm full service. They go, we don't care. So I had to migrate south. In the meantime, Obamacare was coming through where they were now starting to have all these different managed care programs and people were buying high deductible, didn't want to come in. And what I found is when I migrate, I closed one of my least producing offices on the north of the river, migrated south, and that was a more affluent area. This is where I found that I could see less patients and drive more revenue. And so now I started looking at it a little bit differently. The next one I did, this is where you're getting into um, building it yourself or acquiring it. I acquired a practice because an optometrist came to me and she said, hey, I want to sell my practice. Um, and I looked at it and I really didn't like the idea of buying a practice because I know a lot of times the um, culture doesn't necessarily jive, but it was a freestanding building right on the main drag in a section of town that I wanted to be in. She owned the practice outright. She owned the building outright. So I negotiated with her a owner financing on the main building. I got it at uh, 3% interest on a 30-year amortization on a five-year balloon. So I didn't have to come out of pocket for almost anything on the building to start with. Then I was able to convince her that if I was to buy out the practice, that I would only pay 50% of it up front and that she had to work out the back end of it to keep her around for six more months. So my... Um, initial outlay was very minimal. 
also I did it as a asset purchase. And it just so happened that they extended the section 179 and made it large enough that I was able to write off the whole acquisition of the practice as an asset purchase and write it all off as an expense. So wow. that worked out really good. The problem was within a year and a half, every single employee that was in that practice was gone. Um, we at least generated enough cataracts out of there to easily pay it off very quickly and get out from under the five-year balloon with her and stuff. But it was almost a turnover in patients also because the patients that were going there, well, Dr. So-and-so never made me pay for the refraction or I never had to do this. And well, I'm going to, I'm going to go someplace else. So I found it to be, if it wasn't for the fact that I was getting a physical building and property that I wanted at a good deal, I don't know if it would have been ideal to have bought out the practice because I pretty much had to rebuild it after about a year and a half. And I'll jump in real quick there, Toby, just to give you, the, you know, our perspective. Like we expect exactly that because you're exactly right. That's what's happened. Uh, you know, two or three times that we've done this recently, we expect to lose every employee uh, literally within a few months because when Williams and I comes in, we are actually going to work. We're going to see patients. We're going to be delivering state of the art care. It's really important. And you know, to your point, a lot of those mom and pop, smaller, you know, single owned OD practices just kind of don't have that mindset. So. We, what we think of, we're buying the charts. We're, we're literally, we're buying the diabetics and the glaucoma charts. That's what we want is 20 plus years of charts. Uh, we expect the OD to, to not be there. In fact, we prefer that because we want to install our culture as soon as possible, Gary. So it's like one of those things where, you know, we, we just plan for that. Um, and, and because, because Toby's exactly right. It was given to us kind of as a slur, but we've kind of taken it as a badge of honor and, our unofficial motto is Tyson eyes, not for everyone. And that's because we ex hold all our staff to a higher standard. We expect um, continual education. We have a certain professionalism and that you're right. When, you know, your practice goes and acquires it, you're bringing in a culture that usually the people that are working at the, the place that you acquired are working there because they didn't feel comfortable working in an environment such as yours. Right. So while we've got a few minutes left before we uh, end this, I want to talk a little bit about recruiting new docs. Um, Toby, I don't think anyone has been as successful as you at recruiting top talent with Dave Stevens and Christos Ifantides. So what is the secret? What is the secret to um, you know attracting top young talent? Because um, I'm jealous, frankly, that you have such great partners working with you. He gives them Ferraris. He gives them all Ferraris is what they That's get. good. Well, a couple things. First off, in my market, I watched my big competitors just seem to churn doctors. They'd bring them in three years later. They weren't allowed to buy in. They moved along and they just flooded my market with um, extra docs. And what I noticed was some of these docs seem to have such a big ego that they couldn't bring it upon themselves to bring somebody in that was just as good, if not better, and allow them to, to have some of the spotlight. And so when I was looking at this, I go, you know, what type of practice do I want to build? I don't want it just to be the Toby Tyson and cast. I go, I want to have something. And I honestly, you know, I look at what Dick Lindstrom has done there, how Cincinnati Eye has done, where they went out and, you know, growing up, I'm sitting there watching, okay, here's Dick, here's uh, Harden, 
you know, you, you've got everybody there is top shelf on the podium doing research. And I go, that's what I would really like to have. And to me, that's more important than necessarily how much money I take home at the end of the day. So first off, what is your, your, your view? For me, it was quality. Second, how do I go out and get it? And so don't be in a hurry. Figure where do you need to be? When do you need to do it? Acquire talent when it's available. And so I started calling around all my friends at the different uh, teaching institutions and I'll go, hey, you got anything good? No, you don't want this one. Or yeah, this one's great, but they don't want to go to Florida. And, you know, I just was taking my time looking to find that winner. And the hardest part's getting the first one. So when I was able to recruit uh, Dr. Stevens, he was at Vance Thompson Eye with uh, John Birdall and, you know, I was talking with them at one of the meetings and they're like, hey, we actually got somebody who doesn't want to stay up here. He's originally from Oklahoma. Uh, don't think he has any interest in Florida. And so got in touch with him and really tried to explain to him the value proposition that, you know, we have a wonderful area to practice. It's a great place to raise kids. It's not the big city. So that's the downside that a lot of people want. But I go in the long term it's going to be better. And I, and they're like, well, what do you pay? And I go, well, I've got uh, three options, a small salary, big bonus, medium salary, medium bonus, or um, big salary, no bonus. And, you know, he's like, well, I'd want the small salary, big bonus. Cause I believe in myself. And I'm like, okay, bam, you know, we're on the right track. It kind of self eliminates for you. So I knew I had somebody that, that had the drive to uh, grow the practice, but also had the belief in themselves. I knew they had good hands, but also do they have the people skills and do they have the ethics and culture? And that's the harder thing. And so that's where you're looking at who have they worked with? What type of feedback do you get from them? What type of feedback do you get back from the, the reps out there? Then it comes down to having the conversation about the contract. And this is where, you know, I always tell them, I go, there's two important things in life and you better get them right the first go around. One is who you marry. And the second one is, who do you work with? I go, because you don't want to do either one of them over again. It's very, very costly. And I go, both of them have about a 50% success rate on the first go round. And I go, I'm going to tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly. I go, I'm sure you're going to interview other places. They're going to cherry uh, code it. And you know, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to show you the numbers. And at the time with David, I go, look, here's where I'm at. I'm at a high overhead because I've got all these facilities and stuff. And I go, if you tell me you want to buy in right now, there's really no pot of gold behind the curtain. I go, but this is where I see it coming. If I bring you on board and we get you busy, I go, everything else is already covered and paid for. I go, that's going to drive the overhead down and it's going to be financially worthwhile. And one of the fears was, well, are you going to sell out to PE? And I go, I have no interest in it. It doesn't make sense for me. I go, but I'm happy to write into the contract that if I was to sell out to PE, you could immediately vest. That way you don't get screwed over. Right. And so that allayed those fears. And so once he came on board very quickly, he got busy. I did not try to hoard cataracts. I didn't say you couldn't do premium lenses. What I actually did is I said, here, I'm going to have you uh, go to this office and I'll stop going to that, that office. I'm going to let you go to this office. I'm going to stop going there. That way we're not fighting for cataracts. You can build your practice within the practice. We're going to have, you know, equal uh, face time in the marketing. And so you're not a uh, second fiddle because I, ideally I want you to grow. If you grow, it's better for me. 
This, of course, all happened within 20, you know, 2020 with COVID. But even though we were shut down for six weeks, all this other stuff would happen. Uh, the practice grew. Both of us, you know, my cataract volume didn't fall off. It actually grew. And it was additional to him. He was able to buy in after uh, three years. And so in the meantime, he calls me up and says, hey, you know, I was talking with Christos. So you're asking, how am I recruiting? Well, actually, you know, the person I recruited was helping recruit. He goes, what do you think of this? And I go, well, you know, um, I think it's a great opportunity. This is a very uh, skilled individual. I go, this is not on our timeline because you're not fully busy yet. I go, but, you know, I do believe in acquiring talent when we can. We can figure out how to make it work. I go, but you need to go home and talk with your wife. And he goes, why would you, why would I do that? And I go, because if we bring the, um, bring in somebody else, I go, probably it's not going to cut into my take home because my name's on the building and I've been around a while. It's probably going to eat into your cataracts a little bit. And you need to have her understand why the money might fall off a little bit. And he came back a week later to his credit and said, we had the talk. We think it's best to bring in uh, quality while we can. So we brought him in and uh, it did not cut into his cataracts. It was additive. It it once again was able to help lower the overhead. So it's been a very good thing. And now what I'm finding is with the two of them out there now, very happy in the practice, I'm getting lots of people that are, you know, well-known individuals on the speaking circuit that are at that same age group, but they got into practices that may not be fulfilling their needs. And now they're saying, hey, you got room for another. And I'm sitting there going, okay, guys, now how do we yeah. bring in another one? Because you don't want to miss out on it. But at right. the same time, you don't want to just build to be big. You right. want to make sure it's it's all cohesive. Right. There's an old saying that A's hire A's and B's hire C's. And uh, I think that this is case in point that uh, when you're confident in yourself, you're not afraid of hiring someone who can be as good or better. It doesn't threaten you. As a matter of fact, it's part of your culture, what you want to do. Um, Blake, I feel like this has to be part A and yeah. for a to be continued episode. Um, yeah. Toby, would you be willing to come on maybe in the future? Maybe we can oh, do yeah. another set of uh, of question and answer. I'm just I'm loving this and I'm learning so much. Well, I love um, the I format because you you normally you can't put all these little stories or vignettes into an article, and so this is a great way to do it because all of these things have a little moral or or you know pearl that's inside there that you can. Uh, take because a lot of it is like you said what did you do right and what did you do wrong and how could you have avoided it and there's a lot of those things that you're sitting there going okay i i learned from it now you know if somebody else can learn from it then they they, they skip stumbling exactly and that's what makes us all better blake any final comments no i just appreciate the time dr tyson and it's been, it's been great to watch how you've uh, grown this business and kind of took what something that your dad started and kind of blew it up uh uh, and, and has grown and grown and it's bigger than ever. So yeah, I look you know, forward I've to watching too. both of y'all become so successful. So <laughs> it's, it's fun to have friends in industry. It absolutely is. And, and uh, Toby, I'm sure I'll see you at parents weekend at wake forest or our kids yeah. are going to college together and it's been fun to, to get to know you a little bit more socially too. So um, yeah, until next time. Thank you. Y'all have a great night. This has been another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Toby Tyson, for speaking with Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz 
and sharing insights into strategies to successfully expand a practice.